0: All right, I have about six volunteers planted throughout the sanctuary. I need all six of my volunteers to come up to the stage. If you're not sure if you're a volunteer, you are if you have an orange piece of paper with a word on it or two words. So about a month ago, April, Deb, and I went to Orange Conference, and um, you guys need to get an order of... Easiest to deal with in the church versus hardest. So easiest will be here, and hardest will be over there. Easiest to deal with versus hardest. So about a month ago, we went to Orange Conference, and it was in Atlanta, and the three of us got to go, and it was uh, amazing. Orange is uh, a family ministry conference, and um, yeah, and... We learn so much about God's mission to the family, God's mission to teenagers, and God's mission to kids. Um, And so we have an opportunity to learn and grow, and and that's going to start affecting our ministry. Um, All right, so I've given enough enough time. Go ahead and hold them up. Don't just, like, they need to see. So um, one of the main sessions that really stuck out to me uh, I can't remember the guy's name. I think it's usually better when you can't remember their name because then you can just claim it as your own. Um, a teacher up here says it's still plagiarism. But um, but he got up and he's, he had volunteers. And, and we're, we were in a stadium of 8,000 other uh, youth and children's volunteers and leaders throughout the country. And he had, I can't remember exactly what he put on his, but he had these... Things. He had these wounds, these sins, these very hard to, to deal with things. Some of them were really simple and, and some of them were harder. And he asked this simple question How safe is your church for these people? And I have to admit, I, this is a very convicting question. And, and he even w- took it a step further How, how safe is your family? For these people? How safe is your own life? And, and he said, well, you know, in the church, are, are we okay? Are we safe enough for somebody to confess, hey, I have anger problems, but ugh, gossip, I, yeah, we're probably okay with that. So we, we, can, we can allow these types of people to confess their sins at church, but the family that's struggling with a child that has mental illness, uh, are we safe enough for that? Because if we're not, we've just cut off an entire portion of our mission field. Well, you know, maybe, maybe we're okay with this because you can't really do anything about mental illness. I mean, it's, not, it's a wound, it's not really a sin. And so, uh, but addiction, really? I mean, are, are we safe enough for somebody who, who's addicted to alcohol, to drugs? Are we safe enough for that person to come into our building and say, hey, um, I'm struggling with this, can you help me? Or are we too uncomfortable with that situation? Or, I mean, now we're getting real serious. Abortion. Are we a church that's safe enough for somebody who's had an abortion to come in and say, "Help"? Or adultery. Are are we safe enough? Are we safe enough for people to confess that in our church? Are you safe enough? Um, So let's go ahead and give them a small golf clap, just like really small. I'll go ahead and take those. I want you to keep this kind of timeline, or it's not a timeline, but that kind of um, visual in front of you, because when we talk about mission, I think sometimes in the church we can limit or shortchange our mission field by how uncomfortable we're willing to be. Um, and this is all has to do with come as you are, a, a come as you are culture within the church. Come as you are, culture is simply saying, hey, this is a safe and caring environment for you to confess your sins, to bring your wounds, to bring your hurts. And when we are unable to to do that, we shortchange the gospel. And we do this by what we say, how we say it, and when we say it. Okay. So very simply, uh, when we post things on social media and then somebody who's not really in the church sees it and is like, whoa, yeah, not going to that church, not in engaging with that Christian. I can't, I, they're not safe for me to confess my sin. Or when we're at the bank or at Pizza Ranch or Vinton Family Restaurant. Um, or how many of you have seen that, that family that just has like crazy kids and you're like going down the, the the dairy aisle, and you kind of like give them that side eye, it's like, man, get it together. And it's like, well, we only know 10% of their story, and yet we judge it 100%. And when we give that side eye and we're wearing a Blessed Hope shirt, it, oh, man, what's that say about the church? And so um, this morning, we're going to be talking about how do we embody a come-as-you-are culture? Um, because I think sometimes in churches, we, we screw this up as well. It's not just you guys. It's the church as an institution, the church as a structure. We do this with how we teach, what we say, when we say it, and how we say it. Um, and, and we teach all the time. So it's not just like, hey, this is what I'm talking about. We're, we teach all the time when it comes to social media or podcasts or small groups is what and how and when we say it, does that keep people from the gospel? We do it with programming sometimes. There are things that keep people from being willing to to be here. We put stumbling blocks in front of people when it comes to programming. And there are some churches in town, y'all, that are scary to even walk into. Like, it's just like... How many of you have ever, like, gone up to a building and been like, this looks like it's a fortress. Like, I'm not sure I can get into this place. There, there, are, there are buildings, there are facility things that we do as the church that make it intimidating to even walk through the door. There are things that we do facility-wise that shortchange the gospel. One of the the things that um, is on my heart because I'm the youth and children's guy is the loss of my generation and the loss of the next generation. Um, The statistics um, just bear that out that my generation and the generation after me are not just leaving the church, they're like fleeing the church. And I hope it's your desire, it's my desire to to change that. And, And the truth is, the next generation will believe when the church treats people the way that Jesus said that we should. I, I mean, that's pretty simple, and I, and I know that there's probably some of you that are like, "Ooh, where are we going right now? Because I got some truth and I, I need to hold on to that truth. Hang with me, okay? I, I can tell you from being in college, and when you're a Christian in college, I, I came to faith in. In college, didn't grow up in the church. Um, one thing that you do is you share testimonies a lot. Um, and so time and time again, I would hear testimonies from my college friends who grew up in the church, and they would say things like this. Hey, um, we were in church all the time growing up. What, Sunday morning, maybe one to two services in the morning, we would, um, we would go to youth group, we would go to midweek, we would go to potlucks. We, if, if somebody said that the lights were on at the church, we were there. And there, there are some families that are like that. And, um, but then it would always turn and say, well, it always just stayed there, though. It never came home. We, my parents cared so much about being at the church, and it seemed like they couldn't care less when we weren't there There were no gospel conversations. The Bible wasn't opened at home. And and when that happens, when we act as church members, like we couldn't care less, the next generation does care less. Um, One of the things I know is that not everybody has grown up in this room with these. Like, there are some of you in this room that are like, ooh, that looks complicated. Like, there is more computing power in this phone than what sent people to the moon. Like, that's insane. Um, and the, the next generation, my generation, I was kind of like, I got a phone in, in high school, and it was like a brick, basically, and it's like you could just like slam it on the ground, and it wouldn't break. But I've grown up with technology, and the generation after me is like, that's all they know. Um, I was at somebody's house about a week ago, or about a year ago, and there was like a toy phone, like an old phone, like it has two ends to it, and it's got, it looks kind of like the banana shape looking thing. And um, they said, hey, pick up the phone, pick up the phone, and their like, two-year-old daughter, three-year-old daughter was like, phone? What phone? There are, there's a generation of kids that don't even know what that phone, don't even know that that is a phone. And, they have filled their lives with so much social media and activities and, and causes that the next generation doesn't have time to fake it. They don't have time to come to church to fake it. So they don't show up at all. And, and come as you are simply means that we don't ask people to clean themselves up. We don't ask people to come and fake it when they show up here, that they can be real and they they can confess even the hardest of sins, even the deepest of wounds. So how do we do that? Because if I just like, hey, that's it, let's go, then nothing really, it's like, well, I feel like we should do this, but I don't know how. So how do we do this? How do we create a culture where the deepest and most wounded people among us can find healing? Because we have a God who wants to heal. We go to the Bible. So we're going to look at Jesus in John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. Actually, verse 53 of chapter 7. Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense. But we go to Jesus because we can't do this without him. In this passage, you're going to notice that Jesus does three things. And when you read through uh, the Gospel of John specifically, you'll notice that he does this a lot. Jesus, in this passage, creates a come-as-you-are culture, not only for the people outside the church, but for the people inside the church. That's one of the the biggest uh, misconceptions, is that, well, yes, come as you are. That's good for people who don't know Jesus that need to come in. There are people inside the church that are wounded and are hurting and are covering it up because they feel like they can't confess it. So Jesus creates a come as you are culture for the outside and for his 12 disciples. Jesus does three things. I'm just going to go ahead and give them to you so that when we hit them, that you recognize them. Jesus defends, accepts, and corrects. In that order, we mess it up when we do it out of order. Jesus defends, accepts, and corrects. So I'm going to take a drink, and then we're going to get into John chapter 8. I'm going to start at verse 53. Then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people had gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery, They made her stand before the group, and they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let anyone... Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those that heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus defends, accepts, and corrects her. When we, I want to give you a warning, because when we st- try to live out the gospel and try to live out this culture, try to live out this mission, the world is going to trap you. In this passage, the Pharisees come to him and say, ha ha, we got him now, perfect, And they try to trap you between truth and grace. Jesus in this moment has a decision, it seems like, to make. Is he going to honor the law of Moses or is he going to honor the grace that he's been preaching his entire life? In this moment, they bring him this adulterer and say, so, law of Moses, you're a Jew, how do you feel about that? And what I love in this passage is that before Jesus even says a word, he takes his time. He doesn't rush. I think so often um, in, in my life, in, in the church, and, and in our lives, um, when somebody reveals a wound, when somebody reveals a, a, a sin, we want to rush to correction. We want to rush to fixing it. And, and when we do that, people... Feel rejected and attacked. When we skip over defense and acceptance, people feel rejected and attacked. Jesus takes his time. And I need you to understand that when Jesus defends her, he basically brings up something that we know in Scripture already, and that is, he brings up this kind of concept of, like, hey, you have sin in your own life. Remember the story of the wood and, or the, the, the speck and, and the wood plank, the, like, the two by four? Jesus was talking to people and he goes, hey, why are you so focused on the speck that's in your brother's eye? You have this big plank. Go fix it. Get it taken care of. Um, and Jesus does that to the Pharisees in the story. He says, hey, all right, Let's honor the law of Moses, but if you don't have any sin, um, throw the first rock. I mean, if you don't have any sin, throw the first rock. Otherwise, um, there are plenty of rocks around here for all of us, and we can start throwing rocks at each other. Um, He probably didn't say that, but I I like to picture that Jesus is like, Hey, look, brother, um, we live in a desert, and there's a lot of rocks. Um, so, if we're going to start throwing rocks at people, um, let's examine your life and, and let's see if we can throw some rocks at you. Um, and I think th- that concept, I, I mean, if I was in that, like, hey, let's stone her, and then Jesus' is like, hey, let's throw some rocks at you. And like, you know what? Uh, I think I got something. I, I think I left the oven on. I, I, I don't really feel like uh, my shoulder hurts. I don't feel like throwing rocks today. Um, Jesus defends her, but what I find interesting is that um, sometimes in the church we like, (gasps) we like get all tensed up at the idea of defending somebody who's wounded or sinful. And the point here is that Jesus doesn't defend her sin, he defends her humanity. He defends the image of God that was placed in her. There's two truths. that we need to keep in mind for the, the people that we had up here. Regardless of how uncomfortable we are with them or with their sin, there's two truths that are true about them that are also true about you. You're made in the image of God, and we all need the gospel. And when we do that, I was like, well, you know what? I, I'm willing to be a little bit more uncomfortable. Jesus defends her, He defends her value. And the lesson of the gospel for the church is that regardless of what you've done and regardless of what you're going to do, your value is not tied to that. That God looks at you and says, hey, uh, I know you've messed it up, but you're still valuable. You're still worth everything. So when we skip this step and go to correction, people feel like they don't have any value. They feel rejected. When it comes to a come-as-you-are culture, we have to build that relational capital before we can even get to correction. Jesus accepts her. Jesus accepts her without caveat. In verse 11, she says, no one's condemned me, and Jesus just says, neither do I. Neither do I. There's no caveat to this. There's no like, hey, I don't condemn you either if you would just get it together, and then I won't condemn you. There's no like, yeah, I, I, I know you had an abortion, but um, I really need you to like do some penance for me before I can accept you, before I can love you. There, there's none of that in this passage. It's neither do I condemn you. And this makes, us, this makes me feel really uncomfortable, to be honest. I, I love truth, and I love having things black and white. And the, and the concept that I have to slow down before I get to the truth of God and, and the way he wants us to live is sometimes like frustrating because it's like somebody will come to me and be like, hey, I'm... I'm really struggling with this. And I just want to be like, all right, let's get together. Let's pray. We'll pray first. And then um, here's what you need to do. You need to do this, 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 and this. And then they're like, thanks. I'm going to go away. When we don't defend people and we don't accept them, they don't go away. Because what happens when we skip to correction first is that we shame people. And when people feel shame, they don't follow God for very long, if at all. They kind of halfway do it. They're like, "Ah, I guess I'm supposed to be there on Sunday, so I'll just show up. It's what I'm supposed to do as a Christian. I guess I should pray at least once a day. I guess I should read the Bible. When people do things out of shame, it's not a very good motivator. And the truth is... Don't we want people to follow God because God is good, not because God is angry? Don't we want people to follow God out of joy and not shame and guilt? So Jesus accepts her. And the last thing Jesus does is he corrects her. This is the tension between truth and and grace. Um, We defend, we accept, and then the truth comes in. We correct. I remember having a conversation with somebody, um, one of my good friends that I met at camp, and it was during the school year. And when you are a seminary student and you're also a camp counselor, like people just call you during the school year because they're taking like religious courses or they're taking a, a, psych, a, a philosophy course. And so they're just like, hey, I know, I'll call Vince because he knows everything about the Bible. Um, and so she calls me and she's like, hey, um, I'm taking this class, and I have to do a research paper on abortion. Can I talk to you about it? I go, yeah, sure. Um, I was on break at the time, and um, family gets hard sometimes when you're uh, older. And so um, I was on break at the time, and she starts to kind of lay it out. She's like, here's all my research. Um, and she's like, I've been reading some articles uh, about you know, maybe it's okay to to terminate pregnancies if you know that the kid has Down syndrome. And I'm on the other line, and my heart is just shattering. She's like, because maybe the life, maybe that life isn't worth living. And I'm like, oh, man. I'm living with a Down syndrome person right at at seminary. That's my roommate that she's talking about. And she's like, I even read some articles, some people making some pretty convincing arguments that maybe even after people are born, that if they're born with certain things, that maybe it's not good for them to, to live a life. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. And I'm, my heart is just breaking. And this is a, a Christian friend of mine. And I'm like, what are you doing? And so she's bringing these instances and um, this is all part of the world trying to trap you between truth and grace. And because the, the world will present you an in instance, and if you jump to correction too quickly, then it's like, oh, I thought you were a Christian. There's no grace in that. I'm out. See ya. But if you're too gracious, then all of a sudden the value of a human life has been lost. And so there's this tension, and there's these conversations that we have at home, at work, at school that are hard. They get it, but Jesus shows us the way to deal with it. This is two-thirds grace, one-third truth. He defends and accepts, and then he corrects her. There's that relational capital that he's built over time with this woman, and Don't be surprised when this takes some time. I mean, this is the God of the universe in this story, and it takes just like a moment. Um, So you're not, and that may take some time to deal with some people and, and to help them out. It takes time. It takes relationship over time to really help somebody see the gospel. And this is God's plan for true community. I think sometimes in the church we settle for like a shallower form of, of the gospel, a shallower form of community. There are times where we're like, yeah, I, I have this wound, but I'm going to actually share this like smaller one with you that's really not a big deal. Um, and there's some very simple things that we can do because true community connects scars with wounds connect scars with wounds. Um, when I was a kid, um, and even now, I'm not, I'm garbage at riding a bicycle. Um, just absolutely, like, hot dumpster fire. If you see me, like, on a bike down C Avenue, um, like, go get, like, a net or something to, like, catch me, because it, there's something going on. Like, I, like, there's something chasing me, or I, somebody convinced me. Uh, maybe my girlfriend probably convinced me to get on it, and I'm, I have no control, okay? Um, so I'm terrible at this. Um, and I, I'm so bad at riding a bike that I actually crashed into, when I was like probably 15, uh, a bank of mailboxes. Like it, I, I went and got the mail every day. Like I knew they were there. Um, I just couldn't stop myself. So we're like going for a walk with my mom and my aunt, and I'm on the bike because I'm like, I'm 15, I should be able to do this. And I start pedaling away, and they're like, I I got a head start, and they're like, hey, actually, we're going this way. And so I'm like, oh, no. (laughs) I got to figure out how to turn around. So I kind of cut it wide, and then I'm like, I'm just, I'm not turning fast enough. And the bank of mailboxes is right there, and I'm just like, like two feet out, I'm just like, take, take the handlebars, Jesus, and I I go like this, and I end up actually cutting myself on a mailbox, and I got some other scars. I mean, and when I was little, like on a, on a tricycle, no, with the um, somebody help me, training wheels. Um, nobody helped me, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> with the training wheels when I was a kid, like. We lived on a gravel road, and I, like, fell over. Like, it's possible to fall over on training wheels. And I had this, like, giant gash in my leg, and that was the first time, like, I saw yellow coming out of my body. Like, my blood was yellow. I don't know, like, if there's doctors, like, help me. Um, But, so I have a big scar right here. Um, But here's the thing. When my nephews were were learning how to ride a bike, um, and they crashed... I was able to show them my scars. I was able to show them where I had been wounded. And I was able to say, hey, um, there's hope. It's not going to stay this way forever. You're not going to be gushing blood forever. There's hope. It does heal. Uh, and, and in the church, if we're not willing to reveal our scars, then people with wounds have no hope. Um, so there's three heart postures when it comes to this um, this type of community, this come-as-you-are community, the first heart posture is confidence. And, and that may sound like, ooh, getting into like, like self-help talk. It's not. Confidence. You have to be confident in who God says you are to have any part in this come-as-you-are culture. You have to have confidence in who God says you are to live out his mission the way that he intends it to be lived out. Sometimes, when I was younger in my faith, and I had no confidence, I had no clue how much God really loved me, I I would still just try to, like, earn my salvation. I think for some of us, like, we get the gospel right away, and it's like, yes, I'm good. And then for people like me, it's like, yeah, I know God loves me, I know, but, like, I I have to read the Bible in a year, like the whole thing, and maybe twice. Um, Maybe I should read it all in a month. Like, maybe I should be in like 17 Bible studies. It wasn't 17, it was like seven. Like, no joke. Um, In college, it was like, well, class is over, I'm going to a Bible study. And then it was like, Bible study's over, hey, I'm going to a Bible study. And it was like, hey, um, I should probably eat. And then it's like, hey, I'm going to another Bible study. It was like, it was ridiculous. Like, I felt like I had to do everything because I wasn't confident in who God said I was. I wasn't confident in what God said he had done for me. So the first heart posture for being a part of a come as you are culture, if you're going to connect your scars with other people's wounds, is you have to be confident in what God has said. I can't tell you how many times like I came to God and just like prayed for forgiveness for the same thing. That I prayed for forgiveness yesterday and not realizing that God has already forgiven me. Like, I don't need to come before His throne and beg over and over and over and over again for the same thing. God's forgiven me, His grace is sufficient. Be confident in who God says you are. The second thing is you gotta be authentic. Um, authentic is kind of like a buzzword that my generation, like, really loves. Um, And I think sometimes we get confused about what authentic means. Like, I don't wear belts that often anymore because I've gotten bigger and my pants fit me. Um, But when I did wear belts, um, you're like, this is like the one area of my life where like, I think I understand a little bit of what it's like for women when they go shopping. Um, like you go up to the belt rack and it's just like, <sighs> like it is insane how many options. I was like, I just, I just need a belt. Like it's, a, a rope would be fine. And it's like, hey, this one's reversible. This one's a dark tan with a black. This one's a light tan with a black. This is bl-. like ridiculous. And so you, I remember always like pulling them out and looking And near the buckle, it would say, like, authentic or genuine leather. Whenever I see the word genuine, I always got to say I know it's probably pronounced genuine, but, like, I like saying it genuine. Anyway, um, basically what authentic means is it's not fake. And when it comes to our Christian walk, we have to stop faking it. Because when we fake it, other people think, well, they're perfect, so I, I can't bring my garbage in here. Um, we fake it all the time, and, and being authentic means I'm not gonna fake it anymore. Being authentic isn't an excuse to be a bad Christian, by the way. Um, the, you still need to grow, you still need to mature, you still need to to look more like Jesus every day. I think sometimes my generation, especially, like we use authenticity as kind of like a reason for why we suck honestly. Like, it's like, ah, I'm just being me. I'm just being authentic, living at home, 30. It's all right. Just being authentic. Hey, I saw a news story this week where this guy got sued by his parents to, like, get out of the house. Like, (laughs) he was 30, living at home, and his parents had asked him, like, six times to move out, and he wouldn't, so they took him to court. Like, I love my generation, but man, can we trade him to another one? Like, I. He's like, I'm just being authentic. And he, he had the nerve to go on news and it's like, hey, I'm going to countersue them because I was, I was paying for my own groceries and I was cleaning up after myself. And I'm like, okay, go do that somewhere else. Like, I, be authentic, but being authentic doesn't give you permission to, to be just like, well, I'm authentic and I'm never going to join a small group. I'm never going to grow. I'm never going to learn more about God. I'm just going to stay where I'm at. Um, Because a come-as-you-are culture includes leaving changed. Remember that correction part? Jesus defends, accepts, and then he corrects. She came as she was, but she didn't leave the way that she was. She left change. And the last one is vulnerability. This one is like, the hardest one for me. Um, I remember specifically, I was at camp one time, and it was like, we would worship before the the camp week started, and it was like, hey, we're going to be talking about this, and we need to be vulnerable with the kids, and I'm like, cool, I'm not going to do that. And then it was like, God, ever have those moments where God's like, hey, um, you're gonna do this, and um, I'm gonna make you cry while you do it because that's that's how God works with me sometimes. He's like, "Yeah, you said you you said you weren't gonna pursue that, but um, you are, and you're gonna confess to people, and you're gonna cry, and it's gonna be ugly." Um, I'm convinced I'm an ugly crier. Um, I'm okay. convinced like everyone's an ugly crier. Um, and so like I'm sitting after worship, and I'm just like. Like I had a lot of anxiety about being vulnerable with other Christians who were just vulnerable with other Christians like everybody had already like spilled their beans, and I'm like, mm, who am I gonna pick ooh, mm, no he ooh, he he's too good looking i can't you know he he's he's like no I'm not on the same like and definitely not her I can't share that with her and it was like I finally just, like, picked, like, the last person that was there because everybody else was, like, they, like, had their good cry, and they're, like, oh, man, God's so good, and they're, like, skipping to the cabins, and I'm, like, um, you, um, and so just confessed and was vulnerable. And the interesting thing that happens when you're vulnerable is it actually allows other people to be vulnerable. Um, I think it was about a year ago, um, I was at a cookout with some friends from camp. It was kind of like a get together um, during the summer of, of all these camp counselors from all these different summers. And um, one of my favorite people in the entire world is, is Matt. And Matt is—he's um, one of those guys where you're like, God, could you have like just given me a little bit of his handsomeness? Like, he is just like. And, like, I know this because, like, I'm friends with all the counselors that are girls at camp, too, and they're like, "Whoo!" like, I have a boyfriend, but Matt, let me tell you. And I'm like, you need to take that to Jesus. Um, (laughs) That's not okay. Um, But Matt is, like, this guy, and it seems like Matt is just so perfect. He's, like, a worship leader, and he's got, like, perfectly, like, perfect hair, and he's got like a rigid jawline. And we're at this cookout, and I go, hey, man, like what's, what's God been teaching you lately? And he just all of a sudden is vulnerable with me. And he's like I broke up with my girlfriend because God showed me that I was being selfish, that I was pursuing it for the wrong reasons, and I needed to let that go. And then in that, in that season, for me, um, Maggie and I had been broken up for about uh, six to eight months, and we were starting to try and figure it out and try to get back together. And um, God had really pressed upon me like all of the stuff I had done wrong. Um, And when Matt, this guy who I was like, man, he's perfect, when he confessed that he was struggling with the same stuff I was struggling with, I was able to unload what I was struggling with as well. And over the course of that conversation, We got to pray for each other. We got to pray uh, that we would do it better, that God would heal the areas in our lives where we were selfish and, and had messed it up. Vulnerability breeds vulnerability. When you're vulnerable first, people with wounds feel like it's a safe place to be vulnerable as well. And vulnerability, I think sometimes we can do it with really small things like, hey, I'm really bad at riding a bike that doesn't really help anybody. I mean, it's good for a laugh, but nobody's like, nobody's gonna come up to me after the service and be like, Vince, I have been hiding that I too am garbage at riding a bike. And when you shared that, God spoke to me. Like nobody's gonna do that. Um, maybe some of our teenagers that are just like, man, I walk to school because I'm terrible at riding a bike. Um, maybe not, um, but vulnerability is revealing something that opens you up to the possibility of rejection. That's true vulnerability. I think sometimes we can be vulnerable with really small things because we know, you know, nobody's going to really reject me because I can't ride a bike. But if I reveal this, maybe people will reject me. Um, so I just want to, I just want to model that for you um, because. I think sometimes we can talk about things, um, but if we don't actually see them, then it's a lot harder to do it. Um, So I'm going to just model it. Um, About two weeks ago, um, I was woken up by a phone call at like 8 in the morning, and it was Matt. And he said, Hey, Vince. Uh, there's been a tragedy. He explains the whole situation, and I think the only words I ever got out of my mouth during that conversation were okay. I think I said okay like 17 times. I was like, okay. Okay. And it got harder to say it every single time. Like I, did, I, could, God, I had no words. And so got, Matt hangs up, and then over the course of the day, I'm just sitting on my couch at home because Friday's my day off, and I'm just looking at Facebook. I'm just seeing the updates and people are like hey we have uh, all of our boys are older now so we have all these extra clothes and and we're willing to donate them and we have some expendable money that we can do- donate to the Rao family and and people are just doing all this and it's amazing to watch it and I'm sitting in my house and I'm thinking I don't have any little boy clothes and I don't really have any expendable cash to help like what and God, God just gave me a word. He said, baseball glove. And I was ashamed that that's what God gave me. I was like, baseball glove? Are you kidding me? Like, they've just lost everything. And you're telling me baseball glove? This has got to be something bigger. And in that moment, I doubted God. I doubted his providence. I doubted his goodness. I was like, baseball glove, it's not going to matter. It's not good enough. It's not big enough. And so he worked on me all day Friday. I get to the hospital, and I'm playing catch with Waylon, and we're throwing the ball back and forth. It's like this foam ball. It's really disgusting. It looked like Rice Krispie treats. It was weird. Um, And God's just like putting this in front of me, baseball glove, baseball glove, baseball glove, and I'm like, I'm about to walk out of this hospital and not be obedient because I think it's too small, and so I finally got up enough courage because I had a wedding to go to, and finally got up enough courage and asked Waylon for permission and asked Brittany for permission to, to do this, which seemed so stupidly small in the midst of this Giant chaos and this giant tragedy. And we look it up on my phone and, and we find the glove and it's the exact same one. And he's like, hey, th- that's the exact same glove that my dad got me. And then so I'm like, okay, I've got to get him the exact same glove, like, because that makes sense. And, and so I go to Shields in Iowa City and I'm looking and I'm looking and finally I just like, I need a sales associate because I'm, I throw right handed, I don't throw left handed like Waylon, so I don't know anything about left handed glo- and." find the glove. It's the exact same glove. It's only, it only has one problem. It's brown instead of black. And so I doubt God again. I was like, this is not good enough. Like, it's not good enough. I can't, what is going on? And long story short, God works on me throughout the entire weekend. Finally get back to Iowa City Sunday, buy the brown baseball glove, get it broken in, give it to him on Monday, And from the time I gave it to him to the time I left, he hadn't put it down. And then from the time on Monday to the time on Tuesday, when we went as a staff to visit Brittany in the hospital, Brittany said he brought it all the way to Iowa City with him. And then a week later, um, yet last week, his grandparents were here and just said he got to play in a tournament got some time to get away from all the chaos, and and he pitched, and when he got the last out, he went like this. And I doubted the whole time that God could use it. The church is where people hear the gospel. The church is where people mature. The church is where people are held accountable. And if we fail at living out a come-as-you-are culture, if we fail to be vulnerable, to reveal our scars, then people will never hear the gospel. People will never reveal their wounds to you to be healed. People will just wallow in their pain and their hurt and their woundedness, and they'll never see redemption. This is so important for us as a church because... If we don't do this, we don't fulfill the Great Commission. And if we're unwilling to be this uncomfortable all the way over here with the hardest and the deepest wounds, we limit our mission field. And when we limit our mission field, that's sinful. And we've got to take that to God. We need to be willing to be this uncomfortable. We need to be willing to say, here are my scars. There's hope. It heals It will be better someday. And when we don't do this, we don't actually make disciples. We make clones of ourselves. We make clones of ourselves, and we make people that are still trying to, like, hold it all together and not confess where they're hurt or where they're sinful. We make clones, and and that's never the call. We're called to make disciples, And I firmly believe this, that when you're safe enough to hear the wound, then God can heal the wound. When you're safe enough to heal the wound, God can heal the wound. And we have a a great opportunity as a church in about two weeks to go out into our community and defend, accept, and maybe correct in those three days of faith and action. Faith in Action is a great step forward for us as a church to say there are people who are struggling financially that, that need help and they need home repair, and so I'm going to go defend their worth. I'm going to say, hey, you are worth more than what your house looks like, so I'm going to help you out. I'm going to do this. Faith in Action is a great opportunity to defend our community and say you are more valuable than a leaky roof or a shabby house, or an unkept yard, or you are worth more than being stuck in a nursing home and having nobody visit you. You are worth more than that. We have a great opportunity in the next couple of weeks to really bless our community. And my prayer is that we don't just let it stay there, that this becomes part of who we are as a church, that we become safe enough for scars to get connected to wounds so that redemption can happen. So would you pray with me? God, you are so good. So good and so powerful. You are a God who can take a a dumb baseball glove and provide redemption and healing through it. That's you. God, as a church, we confess that at times we are not safe enough for people Who are deeply wounded and deeply hurt. God, can you bring your spirit upon us and heal that within us? Can you make us a church where people know, regardless of what I'm struggling with, I can come there and I can confess. And when I confess, somebody with a scar is going to show me God is good and God heals. God, we thank you for your love. We thank you for the gospel that came to us and said, hey, just the way you are. Don't clean yourself up first. Just the way you are. God, can we be the type of people that say, just as you are. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.